Good evening. Now, there's a big NATO summit taking place tomorrow, and NATO, in many ways, has been revived by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It was looking on pretty shaky ground after Sleepy Joe withdrew from Afghanistan, if you remember, in August last year, without even consulting his NATO colleagues on what had been, from start to finish, a NATO mission. So we'll find out tomorrow what the NATO leaders say. But today, an intervention from General Sir Patrick Sanders, and he's the new boss of the armed forces in this country. Let's just listen to what he had to say today. I believe we're living through a history, a period of history, as profound as the one our forebears did 80 years ago. And now, as then, our choices will have a disproportionate effect on the future. This is our 1937 moment. We're not at war, but we must act rapidly so that we aren't drawn into one through a failure to contain territorial... There you are. This is our 1937 moment. He's making a direct comparison between Hitler's territorial expansionism and that that is being exercised by Vladimir Putin. Of course, you must understand, beneath all of this, when he talks about the will to fight, he is talking about the defence of NATO territory... And right at the moment, even though there was that monstrous cruise missile attack yesterday on a shopping centre, and given the accuracy of cruise missiles, that cannot, just cannot, have been an accident. But there are not any Russian troops or tanks anywhere near uh, threatening NATO at the moment. But I wonder whether this isn't just about defending the integrity of NATO, sending the clear message to Putin. I think there's a subplot here. Because General Sir Richard Dannett, another former boss of Britain's armed forces, he said yesterday, during the Cold War, we had four armoured divisions in Germany ready to take on the Soviet threat. Today, we couldn't even muster one. And all of this against the background of a Conservative government that is cutting the size of the army substantially. So part of me thinks this is about NATO coming together, but another part of me thinks this is about top brass in this country, sending a very, very strong message to Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. That's my view, but please tell me what you think. Is this, in your opinion, our 1937 moment? Let me have your views. Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, joining me to discuss this is a former Armed Forces Minister, which is, I think, pretty relevant, Lord Andrew Robethon. Andrew, tell me, explain to me, how is it that under Conservative... Uh, Prime Ministers since 2010, we've slashed the armed forces to the extent that we have. Well, first, can I confess that I was a minister in 2010 in the Defence View. I nearly resigned, um, and I was told by a friend, Dip said, damn stupid, if you resign, they'll just put somebody else in, he won't. Um, but <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not been just since 2010, it's been since 1990. Uh, that 30 Option, years, options for change. Yeah, 30 Major. years we have spent the peace dividend time and time again. Now, I was in the army in the 1980s, and I spent a year looking east to the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet hordes. And we had, as Dan said, we had 55,000 troops there facing that way. Mm -hmm. Tanks galore, fighter aircraft, the lot. We've, we've wasted them. We got rid of them. Now, change needs to happen. I don't deny that at all. But we've t spent, we've whittled the army down and the army up. Navy and the Air Force far too far, and we're in a ridiculous situation. We have a war going on in Europe on our doorstep, and we are still, as we speak, reducing the number of troops 
aircraft. So and ships. why is your party doing it? I don't speak for my party. I have been banging on. But it's your party. That's I know. Doing I have it. been banging on ad nauseam uh, uh, in the House of Lords about it. I think it's absolutely bonkers. We need. We need to realise that this is the most dangerous time in our lives since 16, uh, 1963. Probably the most dangerous time for most of your view, in most of your viewers' lives. This is shockingly dangerous, and we are still cutting our forces. Right, so and that matters much more than spending money on other issues. So, is my first point correct, yes. that there is a subplot here from Dannett? I, I think it's a subplot. I, think it, it's, I don't think it's coordinated. We all can see all right. not okay. enough money has been spent okay. on defence. As for the threat... From Putin. Now, we know he's got this sort of czarist dream of bringing this concept of Greater Russia back together. Is he a threat to NATO countries? Oh, well, uh, do you know... Is he, and is he a rational player? The 30s is a good analogy. And we need to remember that Hitler told us what he was going to do, and he did it. Slaughter all the Jews. That's what he was, he's put in Mein Kampf. What we have here is Putin, who said what he wants to do. He wants to expand Russia. Mm. He wants to take over the Baltic states again. He wants to... You know, whatever he, he wants in the East, probably Poland, the West in Poland. But he's, um, he's, he's not rational, I'm afraid. He may be very ill, nobody really knows. But he's not rational, he's a dictator and he has nuclear weapons and this should frighten everybody. Are we not in danger of escalating and provoking Putin even further? Sorry, did, did, did we provoke him to invade no, Ukraine? No, no, I'm asked. When you have a conflict, very often mm. both sides escalate the language and it ends with mistakes being made. Are we right at this moment in time to say we're putting 300,000 troops on red alert? Uh, I think we're absolutely right and I'm afraid, going back to the analogy, we have Macron cozying up to Putin, saying, oh, well, perhaps we can save his face and whatnot. Just remember Deladier, the French yeah. Prime Minister at 1938 in Munich, where they said, told the Czechs they had to give away the Sudetenland. And that ended well. Yep, so you see, you see an analogy between There's that an analogy. and Donbass. I hope it's not exact. I don't yeah. want a Third World War. But there is a huge analogy. Yeah. And when uh, Ben Wallace talked about the whiff of Munich, he's absolutely right. Okay. We need to be strong... Because I'm sure you know that in uh, the Fulton, Missouri speech in 1946, Winston Churchill, having talked about the Iron Curtain, said, having worked with our allies, the Russians, over the last five years or four years, whatever it was, I can tell you there's one thing they respect, and that's strength, particularly military strength. And they went on and said there's one thing they despise, and that's weakness, particularly military weakness. And that's what we and NATO's and the West as a whole have shown. And Germany, of course, still funding the Hopeless. war. Hopeless. Still finding the exactly. war. And, and Italy to a certain extent yeah. as well. And, and so, war so, is so painful. Do, so does NATO, I mean, and we know that some of the newer members of NATO, like Poland, yeah. are genuinely and deeply committed to it. Huge question marks around France, Germany and their commitment to yep. any of this. But the big one, of course, is America. I felt, after Afghanistan, how, how could we ever trust America with Joe Biden in charge. Do you think some of that damage has been mended? I think some of it has been mended. I think uh, Biden, who uh, you referred to as Sleepy Joe, very unkindly. <laughs> um, I don't think so, do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, he ha has been saying the right things. He's been sending uh, um, munitions to Ukraine, as have we, and we're, we're top of the list of people sending munitions to Ukraine. But, of course, as we send these munitions, our stockpiles dwindle. We've got none left. We've got to spend money on them. But, yes, I think, I think Biden has been good. I'm afraid Germany needs to look itself in the eye and say, can we really be funding Putin's war machine like this? This is disgraceful. Mm. And, yes, it'll be painful for their economy. Yes, it'll be painful for their heating in the winter. But, you know, war is painful. And better this than letting Putin continue on his march. Do you believe that if the territory of Estonia was violated, 
by the Russian army that America would come to Estonia's defence. I do, actually, yes, I do. And is that the message that will come from the NATO summit tomorrow? I hope so. God, I hope so. But I'm afraid, as you've already identified, one or two of the key players, particularly Germany and France, mm. are weak. Wobbly, to say the very Wobbly, least. Wobbly, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Lord, Lord Robotham, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Keep on fighting for British armed forces, please. Now, a speech today in the Scottish Parliament by Nicola Sturgeon, and it's a script I think that you will have heard before. But let's see what Nicola had to say today. Presenting officer, I can announce that the Scottish Government is proposing that the independence referendum be held on the 19th of October 2023. So, it's not a referendum, it's a neverendum. It's going to go on forever. That once-in-a-generation referendum that Scotland had in 2014 has, within a few short years, now been demanded again by the Scottish First Minister. And, of course, a couple of years after that, there was another referendum, another once-in-a-generation referendum, which was the entirety of the United Kingdom, voting on whether we should remain or leave the European Union. It would appear that Nicola Sturgeon and all of the Scottish nationalists don't actually respect any referendum result whatsoever. It's completely and utterly beyond me why. I genuinely don't understand it. I don't get it. But I suppose it is the raison d'etre for the SNP. If they haven't got a referendum to fight for, if they haven't got separation to fight for, then what's the point, frankly, of them being in existence? The one thing about this that really does infuriate me is that my campaign which I was involved in for, I think, about 27 years in all, which was for the independence of the United Kingdom. And remember, UKIP was the UK Independence Party. I wanted us to be genuinely independent, not to have European law put upon us, something over which we only had a very, very tiny vote. So freed from the European Union, I saw us as being an independent country. Yet we keep, from the Scottish media, from the mainstream media here in London, it keeps being referred to as independence. I don't get it if they all want to be part of the European Union as well. Well, to help me unpack this, um, and I hope explain this word independence, is Neil Hanvey, leader of the Albert Party in the House of Commons. Uh, Neil, Hi. you know, fine, you don't want London, you don't want old Etonians telling you what you can and can't do. I get it, I understand it, I'm not sure I agree with it, but I get it. Hmm. But how is it independence? if you want Brussels to rule you? Well, um, let, let's start off with that, Nigel, Please. because that's not the position of the Alpa Party. We don't right. want uh, to immediately return to the EU, as the SNP are uh, suggesting. Um, we believe that EFTA is a, 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 an important uh, consideration, and that would resolve some of the cross-border so issues. So Alex Hammond's changed his mind on all of this? Um, well, I mean, it's a different proposition. The world has moved on since 2014. Yes. In 2014, we were members of the EU and we were concerned about your party taking us out of the EU. Yeah. And uh, we were told that the only way to remain in the EU was to stay in the Union. But I repeat the question. So Nic Nicola Sturgeon, <coughs> OK, you're Alba. Yeah. You know, I know there's been a big fallout and I, and I get it mm. that, that, you know, Sam and you have a slightly different position on this. I yes. get that. And the world has changed. Yes. But Nicola Sturgeon still insists that Scotland will be members of the European Union and independent. You can't be both. Well, that's 
a case for Nicola Sturgeon to answer. And, but you, and I, but you no, defended that for years too. But, well, I, I didn't. Well, I defended. Alex I, I defended being in the EU. But now that we're out of the EU, we have to reconsider where right, we fair are. Enough. And so we have to reposition I ourselves. I want to ask the SNP that question directly. But let me ask you another, yeah. another important well, can I, question. Can I just finish that yeah, point? Yeah, go on, please. So, so the, um, the, the ultimate decision about whether we join EFTA or join the EU after independence, that's a matter for the Scottish people. That's not for me to decide, and it's not for Nicola Sturgeon to decide. That is a political case that will be made you are voting, after independence. But if you are voting to leave London, it's quite important to tell people where you're going. And well, what. We, will, we will make the <coughs> arguments for EFTA. So what currency would you use? Um, well, we believe that we should have our own currency as swiftly as possible. So it would be a Scottish pound or Scottish pound. something With your own central nature. bank? Um, yes, yes. So I mean, we've got... I, I ran through the, the list of our energy resources today at Treasury Questions. and We've got 8% of the UK population, 98% of crude oil reserves. Uh, that depends uh, where you draw the border. And there's a big dispute is, over that. Is, there's a big dispute is, over that. This is, uh, I think you've this re, is where I, the I think you've redrawn the international map. Absolutely I think a lot not. of those oil fields are actually in English, but, but, the, the, but, the, but that's by the by. That, those are the facts. We Alex have Salmon, a robust Alex economy. Salmon led, Alex Salmon led that campaign, that mm. separation referendum in 2014, uh, with terrific energy and zest. Mm. He did get very caught out on the question of currency and the mm -hmm. question of the EU, and mm -hmm. in the end we know a third of SNP members voted mm -hmm. for Brexit. So mm -hmm. there was always that difficulty. There was always that divide there. Mm -hmm. But Salmon made it clear, and Sturgeon, his deputy at the time, made it clear, this was a once-in-a-lifetime vote. Is it fair to inflict this again on people? I, I don't think it was once-in-a-lifetime. I think it was... Uh, Once-in-a-generation, and so if you look at a, a political, political, a political, life, a political, right. a political generation as defined in the Good Friday Agreement is seven years and we're now well beyond that seven years. So it's time to revisit the question. And, and to go back to that point that you made earlier, look, the, the question of independence would not be on the agenda if the Scottish people didn't vote for parties who support the case for independence. The reason that this issue has continued to be alive is because people have consistently, since 2014, well, they're voting, voted They're voting for, for Scottish parties. They're voting for Scottish parties as yeah. opposed to English-led parties, and I yeah. can see that. But, I mean, I have to say, it does seem to me, given, given the level... Mm. of devolved powers that Scotland has. Mm. And let's be frank, given how badly education's gone, given how badly the Scottish budget, I mean, 22%, uh, you know, deficit this year, mm. uh, despite all the English money that we give you, um, uh, and, and it seems to me, actually... Well, it's actually recycled from Scottish money. Actually. Well, I think <laughs> we spend a lot more taxpayers' money per head in Scotland than we do in England. But it seems to me that put to the Scottish people, they'd just say no again, wouldn't they? Um, I don't think so. Uh, so, and I'm absolutely undeterred by the 50-50 in the polls at the moment. The last time we started the referendum campaign around 2012, after the 2011 uh, majority win by Alex Salmond, uh, the polls were somewhere around 26 to 30 percent. Uh, we managed to put 15 percent on that during that campaign to take us up to 45. And don't forget, it was over 50 percent. It was 51 percent before the vow was announced. So we made great progress. 
during oh, that campaign. No, well, but the, the, going back to the point <coughs> about the Scottish government and their challenges, mm. I, I'm not here to defend the Scottish government. They, no, the SNP but I'm can, saying that the Scottish people will look at it and say we haven't done that great a job. And that's why it's so important that this campaign is about um, a, a popular movement in the, uh, uh, as it was a grassroots movement in the previous Neil, Neil. referendum, and we cut that link with the Scottish government whether, whether so that I agree their day-to-day -day challenges whether don't I, become whether I agree the problems not, of the independence referendum. Whether I agree with you or not, I'm never going to knock people for having political dreams and fighting for them for years because I did very much <laughs> the same <laughs> thing. What is interesting in this debate, I think, is we don't really talk very much about how the English are feeling about this. Remember, the English are 86% of the population of the United Kingdom. And I, I kind of feel there's a sort of an apathy and an antipathy towards this. 25% of English people, when they were last polled, said they'd like actually Scotland to leave the Union. Um, but most people feel a little bit numbed by it all and perhaps a little bit bored by Nicola Sturgeon asking for the same thing again and again and again. It is, as I told you earlier, folks, a neverendum as opposed to a referendum. In a minute, we'll look at the case in Rochdale. Two men convicted, put in prison in 2012 for those absolutely heinous crimes against underage girls now cannot be deported back to Pakistan. Why? It's our old friend, the European Convention on Human Rights. More of that in just a moment. So is the Chief of the General Staff right in saying this is our 1937 moment? Your reactions. Daryl says the General does seem slightly gung-ho and doesn't seem to have noticed that the General Staff and political class have been running down our armed forces for the past 25 years. Well, that was exactly, wasn't it, what Lord Robertham was saying. Ever since Options for Change was introduced by John Major in 1990, we have slashed the size of the armed forces, despite for many, many years asking them to do more and more and more. And generally, we've cut the forces far more under Conservative Prime Ministers than we have under Labour ones. Audrey says, Boris is deliberately and irresponsibly escalating the conflict. He is nothing but a warmonger and has no mandate to waste our money on Ukraine when there are more urgent matters to take care of in the UK. Stephen says, Putin wants it. At some point, he's going to have to be put in his place. And finally, another says, who started the invasion? Do we all want to repeat what happened in World War II? Avoiding confrontation is only seen as weakness to dictators. It won't prevent any wars. Well, we'll get the, that, that NATO summit tomorrow and we will report on what is said by the NATO leaders. But it is a very different-looking NATO to the one that was in such disarray after the withdrawal from, Af from Afghanistan last year. Although, as we've said already on this programme, the position of France and Germany is pretty uncertain. Now, remember the appalling cases 10 years ago, and Rochdale was one of those northern towns afflicted, grooming gangs, underage girls, sexually abused on pretty much an industrial scale. Luckily, in the end, the forces of the law did work, having been much criticised to begin with for perhaps turning a blind eye to something that was going on for fear of being thought racist. And the problem was even more acute because so many of the men involved were people from Pakistan. And that made talking about it even more difficult. But yesterday, an immigration tribunal ruled that two of the men 
heavily involved in the trafficking and sexual exploitation of young girls. Two of them, who due to be deported, will now not be deported because it would infringe their human rights if they're sent back to Pakistan. No matter about the human rights of the girls, the young girls that lived in Rochdale, it is because we are still signatories to the European Convention on Human Rights. I think the whole thing is pretty appalling. And joining me is Maggie Oliver, best known for being a former detective constable in the Greater Manchester Police and for exposing the Rochdale child grooming scandal. Uh, Maggie, good evening and thank you for joining us. Good evening, Nigel. Thank you for having me on. Well, not at all, and well done you for the work you did, uh, the brave work you did in exposing all of this, and I suppose getting convictions in court, putting these men in prison, was part of your success story. But how do you feel, given that the Home Secretary at the time, Theresa May, said very clearly these people should be deported, and now, after lengthy legal battles, they're going to be allowed to stay? How does that make you feel? Angry, uh, actually livid, but actually, Nigel, um, I don't. Ah, right. We have lost the link, which is a terrific bore because she was I'm, just I'm the so person sorry, Martin, yeah. that we wanted to speak to on this very subject. But we'll do our best to get Maggie back, and as soon as we do, we will go straight back to her. Now, 25 years ago... Ah, right, she's back. Maggie, I've got you back. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened there, my, my signal. Anyway, I, I don't right. see this case as a success on any level, from the charges to the convictions to the time spent in prison to this latest fiasco. Um, and, and actually, my understanding, Nigel, is that the two men are still have not had uh, a decision. But what has happened is that one of the three who was ordered to be deported um, has uh, he 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 accessed a legal loophole. So five days before this got to court, he was he reneged on his Pakistani citizenship, and so uh, for four years the Home Secretary and Sajid Javid have known that he was not going to be deported. That has only just come to light, and the other two abusers who are. Um, fighting deportation have argued that because he isn't being deported, nor should they be. And, and the other thing that makes me so angry is that one of the abusers, um, Adil Khan, who got a 13-year-old child pregnant where we had a fetus and DNA, he's got the cheek to even say that um, he's entitled to a family life that his son deserves a role model. The whole system is broken. It's shocking. It just, you know, this case exposes time and time again the failures in our criminal justice system. And, you know, my take on it is that these men gave up their human rights when they did what they did. Where are the human rights of the victims? What about the children who walk around, they're young women now, walk around Rochdale every day um, in danger of coming face to face with their abusers? Where are their human rights? And our whole system is... Um, is flawed. There is no equality. It is not balanced. Well, it is all, you know, um, weighted in, in, in favour of the abusers, who, for me, should not even be walking the streets. 
No, listen, you've said that with, with great passion and great feeling, and, and, and I absolutely understand why, and I'm sure everyone watching and listening to that feels very much as you do. But the heart of the matter and the reason we have protracted lengthy battles when it comes to deporting foreign criminals, when it comes to deporting terrorists, when it comes to deporting those who come to this country with no rightful claim across the English Channel by small boat, is because we're signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights. We've written it into, e into UK law with the Human Rights Act. Um, and it really means uh, that the police and the courts in the end go round in circles for year after year. Is it time we left ECHR? Is it time we actually dealt with just British law without that interference? You know what, my, Nigel? Um, I feel, after my journey, the last you know, 10 years, I have seen corruption at the highest level. Um, and I have seen um, how, I mean, you only look at this case time and time again. I, I do believe that um, innocent people do need some protection from the authorities that would otherwise trample all over them. But what I would also say is that these men have had millions in legal aid. We, we should be um, oh, yeah. using our system yeah. to protect those who need protecting. I don't think the issue here is human rights. I think the issue here is that uh, very clever lawyers find a loophole and exploit that at the expense of victims. Anybody in this country listening to what we're saying now would feel that this is not a human right. This is actually not right. It comes down to right and wrong. And there are some things that are so wrong that human rights act or not, they are wrong. These men were released from prison, on parole. They never showed any remorse. The system should not have released them. There are failures right through this whole shebang. Where were the representations on behalf of the victims in this case? There are so many flaws in the system. I think to say that the European... No, I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you. You know, that the, the treaty itself is there... To, whether it's run by Europe or not, I would like a, a body other than the police and the courts to go to when I am being trampled all over. Well, because, well, well you know, Maggie, I mean, before, that before the worse. Human Rights Act, before the Human Rights Act, um, beginning with Magna Carta and evolving ever since then, I think we had a pretty good, pretty fair judicial system that did actually give rights, uh, far more rights and far more liberty, perhaps, than other European countries. We'll debate that another time, but I think the essence um, of what is going on here, you've put your finger on, this is about right and wrong, and what is happening thus yeah. far in terms of deportations is wrong. And I thank you very much for coming on the programme this evening. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Nigel. Well, it's very, I mean, you know, Maggie Oliver there, very, very passionate indeed um, about that case. And she, of course, had to deal with all of this horrendous stuff at first hand. Now, something else that's gone on over the course of the last day, which I find pretty extraordinary, it is a what the farage moment, is it's 25 years since J.K. Rowling's books, the Harry Potter series, came out. The books came out, they've sold astonishing numbers, they've been turned into hugely successful films. But when Sky News yesterday wanted to interview Tom Felton about the 25th anniversary of the launch of those books that has made people like him so hugely wealthy and successful, this is what happened. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? And you're sort of 
you know, you're still very much, you and, and the other stars of the film are sort of very much still the face of the franchise, if you like. You know, we sort of, you know, speak to you and hear from you guys, and as I was just saying, we get asked about it all the time. JK obviously has a, a sort of more of a, a backseat now. Is it strange, kind of her not being around at things like this? Next, next question, please. Oh, OK. Uh... <laughs> so there you are. There you are. Any conversation, and it's shut down by the PR immediately, it's a disgrace. Now, we're going to go to Polly Middlehurst. There is some breaking news from a New York courtroom. Nigel, thank you. The breaking news this hour on GB News. Ghislaine Maxwell has been sentenced to 20 years in prison for helping the sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. The British socialite was found guilty last December of luring young girls to the financier between 1994 and 2004. Ms Maxwell apologised to her victims in court, saying she hoped the sentence would allow them peace and finality. So that just through to us within the last few moments, moments excuse me, Jelaine Maxwell has been sentenced to 20 years in a US prison for helping the former US financier Jeffrey Epstein abuse young girls. She was convicted last December on five charges of recruiting and trafficking four teenage girls abused by Epstein, who was then her boyfriend. One of her accusers said outside court that she should remain in prison for the rest of her life. More detail on that when we get it. Polly, thank you for that. And 20 years, the sentence there for Elaine Maxwell. Actually, a lower sentence than many had predicted, but at the age of 66, it does mean at least most of the rest of her life will be spent in that prison. Does sound like she did at last show some degree of remorse. In a moment, it will be time for Talking Pints. I'll be joined by Lord Nigel Dodds of the DUP. It's that time of the day. Yes, it really is. It's time for Talking Pints. And I'm joined by Nigel Dodds, or, of course, Lord Dodds, as we now <laughs> have to call you, now that you're such a, a part of the establishment. Yes, yes. Well, I wouldn't necessarily uh, describe myself as part of the establishment. When you're from Northern Ireland, a democratic unionist, you know, some people in the Lords look at you as if, you know, what are, what are we going to get here? What are we going to get here? But yeah. I've been around Westminster a, a long time now, so I know how it works. You, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because because you, you, know, you qualify as a barrister and you perhaps could have had you know, a stellar career <laughs> in the law and <laughs> not had any aggro in your life yeah. or, or and made money, and, but it's been... Really, you've given pretty much the whole of your adult life in service to what was the tiddler political party in Northern Ireland. It was the Democratic mm. Unionist Party. The Ulster Unionists were absolutely there as the dominant force in unionism. And here was the little DUP, and mm. you served for years as the General Secretary, mm. for many more years as the Deputy Leader. And for most of that time, under this very dominant figure of Ian Paisley. And for those watching and listening who don't remember Ian Paisley, we're going to show you a clip from him in the mid-1980s. So watch and listen to this right now. Never, 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 never. 
mean, I don't quite know what to say. I mean, I think I had some politically oratorical skills yes. at times, but, I mean, the power, the passion. Mm. Now, I got to know him a bit in the European Parliament. You knew him incredibly well, mm. and you also knew that basically most people on the mainland, their knowledge of Ian Paisley was through the 9 o'clock news mm. and how the BBC wished to portray him, and, mm. and kind of... He was seen to be this kind of monster yes. figure um, with views on the Pope that mm. sort of many thought took us back to medieval times. Mm. What was he like as a, as a human being? Well, as you say, that clip in particular, which was the 1985 yeah. um, rally against the Anglo-Irish Agreement, where all the Northern Ireland MPs resigned their seats en masse in order to get a democratic mandate against the imposition of this... Uh, agreement which unionists saw as imposing Dublin involvement in Northern Ireland's affair, the internal affairs of the United Kingdom. So there's some issues that don't go away. They're the same. Yeah. Uh, we're still dealing with some of those issues today. Uh, I remember that particular day, actually, because Jim Molyneux, who was the leader of the then Ulster Unionist Party, and Ian were ready to go out with the other MPs. And there were some people actually on the stage, the massive platform. There were about 200,000 people waiting for these politicians to come out. And there were people actually up on the platform. And I was sent out as a humble councillor, indeed, to get them off the platform. <laughs> you can imagine what that was like. Sort of, you know, the, eye, the eyes of Northern Ireland on you. But, um, no, it was... It, Ian was an incredibly uh, powerful orator. He was a great preacher of the gospel. Uh, so he, he knew how to speak to an audience, to a crowd, at a very, you know, to a massive audience, but also uh, almost as if he was speaking to you one-to-one. -one. And on, 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 on a private basis, I mean, he was remarkably well-liked in, in, in the corridors of Westminster and in the yeah. European yeah. Parliament. I, I, Actually, I, I, people I, who disagreed with him vehemently politically got along with him famously. I found him charming. Yeah. I, I mean, mean he, almost Edwardian manners. Yes. Um, he'd hold doors open yes. and say hello to everyone. Body and, and he never held a grudge. He could he could argue, you know, really forthrightly with, uh, you know, political opponents. But afterwards, he would be uh, charming, as you say, and generous mm. and helpful to people. I mean, he had a great reputation as the North Antrim MP, as someone to whom you know many Roman Catholic constituents, uh, nationalists who wouldn't support him in a million years for his unionism, but supported him because of the way he dealt with them and his pastoral role. He was a complex character, but he was he was he was a great um, and the little DUP, yeah, which you attach yourself to. Yeah, well, it's still the little DUP. Um, I know all about this. UKIP was tidy too. So yes, I know yes. all about we, this. We built it up though but, into something but, quite big in but, Northern I mean, Ireland. Boy, you know, you became the biggest yeah. party. He became the first yeah. minister. Was this a reaction to what was seen in Northern Ireland? as perhaps London turning its back on the province? Yeah, I think there was uh, a feeling that the Ulster Unionist Party had become too sort of... Uh Part of the establishment is what yeah, we were yeah. talking about oh, earlier. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. Learn the lessons of history. But um, uh, and I think the DUP represented uh, an authentic voice of, of unionism, and it was also very good on the ground at working and helping people. Ian's example in North Antrim paved the way for a lot of others, and they followed that example. So we did grow from a point where we were really the really small uh, partner in unionism yeah. to, to being the dominant. But to the extent now that you know. We, 
we have eight MPs at Westminster and the Ulster Unionists don't have any at all. So there's been no. a massive sea change. There has, but there's been a sea change on the other side of the yes. divide as well. Absolutely. Where, you know, John, John Hume, who, who was, was a very, very big figure again. Massive figure. Yeah. And him and Ian Paisley dominated the European elections yeah. in okay. Northern Ireland. Okay. There were only three MEPs. They were the two main people. And now, of course, the SDLP don't even have a seat. They used to make me laugh because when I was first there, John Hume and Ian Paisley and John Hume liked the members' bar. Yes. If you know what I mean, in Strasbourg. And I, too, quite like the members' <laughs> bar in Strasbourg. <laughs> and I found him, you know, very expansive, yes. uh, very interesting man. Yes. Very yes. interesting man. Yes. And I was very struck. I thought a profoundly decent man yes. as well. Um, and then sometimes Ian Paisley would come in mm. And, I mean, it must have looked to him like the last days of Sodom and Gomorrah, mm. you know, champagne corks <laughs> popping. And, and he would sit in the middle of the members' bar. You perhaps remember this yes. of your visits yes. and your time there. Yes. Sit in the members' bar reading the Good News Bible. I, right. thought, I, thought, I thought the sort of cross between the two. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he, I mean that's one thing about him. I mean, he, 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 he didn't... He lived his Christianity, and it was a real thing. Mm. I mean, he would have read the Bible. I mean, I remember one time they... The flight out to Strasbourg, all the British MEPs and the Irish MEPs would all go together on this charter flight. It was called yeah. the by-election special, morbidly <laughs> enough. Um, and, and we'd all fly out and we came through this really bad turbulence on the way into Strasbourg. And some of the MEPs were, you know, it's terrible, terrible. Ian, pray for us. And Ian was saying, reading the Bible, you know, saying, don't worry, your time hasn't come yet. <laughs> and, you know, he was just, a, he, he, he really lived it out, you know. But, I mean, he, he enjoyed Europe in the European Parliament, although he was he was a, a Brexiteer oh, but before it was popular, yeah. Yeah. He, he was always very consistent that he believed the United Kingdom shouldn't be in the European Union or the European community then. But he did a very effective job, along with John Hume, for the people of Northern Ireland. No, I agree Ireland. with that. And, agree and he enjoyed that. that international I agree stage. With that. But John Hume, jo John Hume's gone. Yep. And the, SD, the SDLP has gone the same way as the Ulster Unionist Party, and it's now Sinn Féin yes. on the march. Yes. But not just in Northern Ireland, yeah. but, it, but in the Republic as well. That's right. I mean, what does this mean? When you, you know, I know that you fought for your political life and it's your great passion for Northern Ireland to be a full part of the United Kingdom, which is why ultimately the Brexit deal is so offensive to you. But if you look 10, 20, 30 years down the mm. road, Nigel, in your heart, do you think Northern Ireland stays part of the UK? I do. I do, because do you? if you look back through history, you look back through history, people have been saying from the 1920s and 1930s that there would come a time in a few decades where unionists would be outvoted and that there would be a united Ireland. And it mm. has never happened because there are a large number of people who may not be Protestant by birth, uh, and there's an increasingly a, number, a lot of people in Northern Ireland who don't... I don't describe themselves as belonging to any church at all, but who see the and that's merits. that's a big change, isn't it? Is it is a big change, but yes. they see the merits. There's a substantial number. If it came to a referendum, they may not vote for a unionist party, but if it came to a referendum, they would vote for the union because mm. being part of the fifth or sixth biggest economy, when they look at the, the Irish Republic, yes, it's done well in recent and, years, and, but they and, have and a and lot of problems. national health service, which, yes. of course, the Republic doesn't where, have. Where you pay for your appointments, yeah, yeah, you pay yeah, for your yeah, eye yeah, tests, yeah, yeah, you pay yeah. for this, that, and other, where the housing situation is really, really uh, challenging. Mm. We're interested enough, Sinn Féin keep telling us in the north, you need to join with the 
Irish Republic, and then down south, whether the main opposition party, they're laying into the government. It's all terrible down here. Uh, you know, I mean, there's no, there's no logic. To it. I say the best advertisement for staying out of the United Ireland is listen to Sinn Féin's tirades and the Doyle against the current yeah, government. Yeah, I mean, he couldn't invent some of this stuff, no, but then parties are good at that. But that's what's happened. But Northern Ireland itself, you know, and I think the truth of it is, the truth of it is the British establishment has kind of said we don't want to know. You know, John Major once famously said, we have no selfish mm. interest in Northern yes, Ireland. We have no strategic. selfish interest yes. in part of our own country. And when it comes to news items, etc., Northern Ireland mm. has been tucked into this sort of yeah. other status. But, so most English people have never even been to Northern Ireland. Yes. But those of us that are old enough have... I mean, you grew up all through the Troubles, which were pretty horrific, yeah. weren't they? Yeah, no, look, I mean, I remember. I, I was brought in a beautiful part of the world with, uh, down in County Fermanagh, the lakes, yeah. all of Fermanagh, yeah. in my early years. But, I mean, uh, living in Belfast through as a student and, and so on through the Troubles well, was was difficult. But Belfast now is an incredible place to it's come like and visit. British, and Northern it? Ireland, you know what? It is. And, uh, you know, we have had some spectacular events there. We beautiful countryside, fantastic restaurants, the whole nightlife scene has really taken off and uh, you know Northern Ireland really is a great place to, to come to visit but also a great place to live. I mean the standard of living is good, our schools are first rate, our education system is excellent and uh, so, you know, we have a lot to be proud of. I mean, Northern Ireland... Are you working for the Northern Irish Tourist Book? <laughs> <laughs> Which I was sometimes, but no, not sadly. But, uh, so you're saying to people, actually, it's a very safe place to come. It's got a lot going absolutely, for it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, anyone who comes... And the hospitality of the people. The, the, the People in Northern Ireland are a generous... People used to joke, you know, they're just, they're just cruel and nasty to each other, you know, but outsiders yeah. are very... <laughs> but, I mean, that's changed as well. And, of course... Um, that's what people remark upon. Even during the darkest days of the trouble, people would come to Northern and say, you know, people in Northern Ireland are friendly. They're right. outgoing. They say hello to you in the street. If and they meet you once, they'll say hello again and sometimes. Make, and they make the most enormous breakfast. Yes. Uh, f there's no, certainly no doubt is about the, the, the Ulster uh, Fry. The Ulster Fry is infamous everywhere you go. And the amount of soda bread and titty farls and all that stuff. Yeah, so was fantastic. it all worth it? I mean, you know, some massive concessions were made at the time. Mm of the Belfast Agreement. Massive concessions were made. Mm. And you talk about Belfast today, and I've been yeah. in the last couple of years and seen it, and it looks like a modern British city yeah. to yeah. me in operation. Those sacrifices and compromises were worth it. Yeah, well, look, some of, some of them at the time we, we opposed, and we did get some stuff rectified. I remember, I remember. Some of it is now past the board. Um, but I think also we've got to remember that Northern Ireland is still part of the United Kingdom. We have this protocol issue to sort out. It's a real danger to Northern Ireland's future if we don't get a sort out, because Brexit then isn't really done as far as the United Kingdom's concerned. But yesterday in the House of Commons, we had the second reading of the, of the bill to hopefully put some of that right. And if we can get that sorted out, then I think we can look forward to a very good future within the United Kingdom. And I have no doubt that that will be the case for decades Biggest threat to, to unionism. Biggest threat to unionism is the split within unionism. Yes. You know, we've got a... There's a TUV. Mm. There were three parties. Yeah. Three identifiable yes. unionist parties. Well, you were talking earlier about people in Britain, you know, when they don't... 
they, they would look at the three unionist parties so in Northern Ireland and say, what on earth is this about? There's hardly any difference. We say they're all mad over yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you are, but literally, and, shooting, politically, shooting yourselves yeah, in the feet and with Sinn this. Yeah, and Sinn Féin are only the biggest party by, by three seats because of those divisions right, within unionism. Yeah. And so, look, our appeal has been, as we are the biggest party now and we have a responsibility to reach out to others and, and Geoffrey Donaldson, our, 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 our leader, is, has, has put that invitation out that it needs to be better cooperation working together. I would love to see the day mm. that there was one unionist party, that there was one movement which brought everybody well, together of all wings and sections of unionism. You need it, you need it. Yeah. And final thought, final thought, what's it like being a lord? <laughs> well, it's very different from being an MP. You have a great platform in the House of Lords. I'm very privileged to have that platform. But you don't have a constituency. And I had the so honour... So no-one to answer to? No, no, no one to answer to, except, well, the party rings you occasionally, uh, and, and, and some people do hold you to account who, who remain in the background in terms of the party. But in terms of the constituency... I love the constituency work. I had a very challenging constituency in North Belfast, an inner-city constituency with a lot of problems and mm. challenges. Mm. But not having that amount of time to spend on that issue, on those issues means you have a lot more time to do the policy stuff, the networking, mm. to promote the union in a whole lot of ways that I couldn't have time to do previously. And I'm enjoying that immensely. Well, after all these years, you're not going to stop, are you? <laughs> Nigel Dodds, thank you for joining very me much. on nice Talking Pints. Very good indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Just wait here, then. It is time now for Barrage the Farage, where you, the viewers, send in your questions. I do not see them beforehand. Here goes. One viewer asks, has the government given up on Northern Ireland following the Brexit deal? Well, of course, there was a time when the Conservative government, of course, needed the votes of these chaps <laughs> in 2017. Right. What good it did you in the end? Have they given up on Northern Ireland? Well, I mean, they've brought the protocol bill forward. Um, you know, that's progress. We need to see it delivered. We'll see. Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll keep their feet to the fire. I, I, I would answer this by saying that we've actually tried to forget about and demote Northern Ireland for years, but now... Uh, what has happened as a result of the Brexit deal, the threat to the Union, what it could mean for Scotland also mm. means actually the government hasn't given up on Northern Ireland. I just hope they've got the guts yeah. to sort it out properly. Mike asks, do you believe the census figures are accurate? Mike, there were some census figures out today showing the population of England and Wales had risen but stalled. I don't believe any of these figures. I think there are huge numbers of people now who just don't fill in census forms. They want to keep away from the tax man or whatever else it may be. And certainly, if you were here illegally, you wouldn't fill in a census form. So I'm very, very sceptical about those figures. Moving on, Bob asks, has Boris Johnson got the courage to soften his position on green policies in order to allow the nation to survive the present crisis? Bob, I just don't know. But what I do know is this policy we've had for years of exporting manufacturing jobs and importing energy that we could produce here may make him feel great at the G7 where they all prayed together as the trendiest not wearing ties and aren't we cool and aren't we great. But the reality is our CO2 emissions may have gone down but as a result of all the imports we bring in from the rest of the world of manufacturers and indeed 
of energy net to the world, it puts CO2 up. So the whole thing is absolutely, completely nuts. Tomorrow, big NATO summit. We'll be looking at the main messages that come from that. We'll discuss those tomorrow evening. I'll be in this chair with you tomorrow evening at 7pm.